Good evening, good evening, this is Eyesore. This is your number one stop shop for uh, beef jerky and roast beef and uh, learning how to paint. And now, sculpt! Because tonight's guest is Zoe Dufour. Uh, Zoe lives, well, she's about to move to California, so look out, no cow. Anyway, <laughs> she lives in Brooklyn, works in Queens at the Grand Central Atelier. Uh, where she teaches sculpting. What else? Um, I had her. I went to the GCA for about six months. Zoe was my sculpture teacher on Fridays. And I really found her to be, to have a, a very unique style of teaching, a, a way that emphasizes efficiency and making sure that you're getting the job done. It was really refreshing. Really glad she got on the show because there's a lot to learn from this conversation. You'll come away from this with a decent idea about how to sculpt a, a portrait. I mean, you'll just kind of know what to do. You've got a little bit of a roadmap. If you're a fan of Stan Prokopinko on the Proko YouTube channel, Zoe recently had a, a little video series. I think there's like a course in which she sculpts a portrait bust. Uh, so if you're interested in learning how to sculpt, I recommend buying that course. There's also a free video on YouTube of her sculpting, uh, so you can check that out. I'll link that and a bunch more in the show notes. And with all that being said, I think that's it. And uh, saddle up your horses, and let's get listening. So here we are in this, in your studio, right? Where, yeah. Where are we? Can you describe where we are? We are in the sculpture studio of Grand Central Atelier, which I use as my studio space because it's not a heavily used studio, so it's very comfortable for me to share the space with the so students of the program here. You use that to your advantage. Yeah. It is your own studio. So the, the place where you sculpt is also the place where you teach. Yeah. It's pretty convenient because it means I have a lot of my books and sculptures and other props I use all in one place. That's right. nice. So, yeah, tell us about yourself. You sculpt here. You live in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And you work at a sculpture firm. Is that right? Yeah, a sculpture company. Sculpture They're, company. Yeah. It's called EIS. Yeah, Studio EIS. They specialize in figurative historical work, like, primarily U.S. historical figures. Um, it's a really interesting company. Uh, they've done a lot of the presidents, a lot of Abe Lincolns and George Washingtons, uh-huh. Thomas Jeffersons. The same, you make the same Abe Lincoln over and over again kind of thing? Variations. Variations. Yeah. Of <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the as far as commercial sculpture work goes, I, their quality is incredibly high, especially um, in the United States. I feel like there's not a lot of representational sculpture here so it's nice to work at a place that pushes a skill set like not only to do it well but to do it quickly and Mm. you get interesting clients and you work with a high caliber of people right you're trusted at this place as like the best in the world or the best in america you know top of your game kind of thing hopefully yeah yeah okay (laughs) so uh what do you do there do you work on abe lincoln's it's a mix. Yeah. yeah. I'll go between sculpture work and fabrication. So they have a few different processes for getting to an end product, and 
they have a few different end product sort of models they offer. Um, if things are going into bronze, then it's clay sculpted, which is the most fun for a, a sculptor. A lot of the things they do end up as like resin mannequin bodies that are for soft costumes, like historical costume and museums. So those are less fun, but still require some posing and sculpting, but just in a looser way. They do something which I think is so smart, where they, they'll live cast a model that's roughly the size of the person they're trying to oh, right. recreate. Right. And it's a really rough cast. It's just plaster bandage over the person's body. And usually the person's wearing some sort of like leotard type mm -hmm. situation. So you're not getting really detail, but you get all the mass and bony right. landmark structure. And then basically we treat the foam like a mannequin or like a marionette. So we cut it at joints and then repose it into oh, the funny. actual gesture. And that's actually so fun. Uh -huh. I wish we had a system like that for the school just because it forces you to teach in, like think in volumes, uh, which I don't think people inherently do if you're coming from drawing or you're used to using contour, but if you're right. handed a volume of a body or like a series of volumes and you're going to think in volumes to arrange it. Yeah. Oh, and you, you create almost a new figure out of the existing figure. Yeah, like all the information is there, but you have to know how the body moves to structure it in a way that feels comfortable and makes sense. Right. And so that to me is a lot of what the work I've been doing is setting up figures and they're working on, I think it's a uh, woman's like a historical monument for Richmond, Virginia, like a woman's monument. So I've been working, setting up figures for that project. And that's what I've been doing most. Ah. But do you think of yourself primarily as a fine artist, or is this studio EIS thing a, you know, would you be fine working there forever and ever? Oh, Probably not. I yeah. mean, <laughs> yeah, it's a job. Yeah, it's a job. It's like a really fun job. Like right. I, I, I like going into work. Um, like I find it compelling and interesting to be there. Yeah. Um, You're basically a full time sculptor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I teach. You are a full time sculptor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess like I sometimes I hesitate to say that because I teach like I teach one day a week and then I work at ICE three uh, days yeah. a week. And okay. so that's my my work now. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All your bread and butter comes from sculpting. Yeah. So that's that's pretty good. Now, ideally, I'd like to be able to make my own work or do, like, a small-scale, I guess, version of what ICE does. And a lot of it's state or city-sponsored public yeah. art. Uh -huh. And so I know a few sculptors who are able to make a living doing that. And I think that there's a fair amount. I say fair amount. Um, there's money yeah. in in public works just because cities are required to allocate a certain percentage yeah. of funds for that. Right. I think once you get into that system, I you have like an easier time getting work, but I'm not I'm I'm not sure really how okay. to begin that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So you uh when you first decided you were going to be an artist yeah. as a living. Yeah. What were you thinking? And did you imagine yourself being here? Definitely not. Um, what, did you, what did you see as like possible for yourself? I was always interested in art, so sometimes I think it was sort of like a 
when you're doing well at something, people are like, oh, you should just do this thing, which maybe isn't the best answer, but it was something I always enjoyed. Right. And so maybe when I was, like, 16 or 17, um, I was looking at art schools and trying to figure out if that was the direction I wanted to go. And I was actually... I almost went to cooking school because I couldn't find hmm. a representational or like a skill-based yeah, art yeah. program that I really liked. So I was like, cooking is also like art, and there's like it's like more of a craft like yeah. teaching where like there like there's not like interpret. I mean, there is interpretive cooking, I'm sure, but like that someone's actually going to teach yeah. me how to cook well. Cooking, yeah, cooking. deconstructed cooking. <laughs> 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 so. <laughs> That's not what I was looking for. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I was like, maybe I'll just take art classes and be a chef. <laughs> but that wasn't, like, my my dream job. I just thought that was, like, a way to express myself yeah. that seemed artistic and skill-based. So you were looking at art based. Yeah. And you were like, hmm, maybe not? Yeah, I didn't really, honestly, I didn't know what to do. I, did, I was, like, looking at, a college, at colleges out of high school, and then I just didn't apply to any, which was not the best move. <laughs> because I was like, nothing looks good to me. Like, or it looks okay, but not like, I don't want to pay like, you know, $30,000 yeah. for this. Nothing grabs you, really. Yeah. You, you, ah, you had like a good idea of what you want to do from the very start. Yeah, at Seems least like in it. art. Um, I also was riding horses at the time, and so I was also um, being paid to train horses and so I was I could see this trajectory where I just didn't go to school and kept yeah. doing this work where I was like already making money and you get paid well but also you know if you get injured which is really likely when you're working with a thousand pound uh -huh. animals that are flighty uh -huh. and I was like that's not a lot of you know job safety yeah. not that going into art is right. um, <laughs> very right. secure either but I thought at least like you can just sit at an easel and it's fun and engaging and less likely to be, you're less likely to be, like, kicked or something by a large animal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So were you, uh, you're, in, you're from California. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking of AAU at all when you were at, uh, looking at colleges? Because AAU seems like it's all right. Yeah, I looked at it a little bit, but it's, I still felt like, I don't know, like it wasn't super, mm. super compelling to me. Yeah, and then, yeah. um... A friend of the family actually lived in Ashland, Oregon, where there was the atelier that I first went to, the Ashland Academy of Art, and she just recommended I come take a look at this school. Okay. And so I did, and I was like, this is, it was the closest thing I had seen to what I wanted. Yeah. Which was just, like, studio classes. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was it. <laughs> and so I applied there and ended up going there for a year until they moved. And then that's how I found out about the whole like ARC and like this whole network of ateliers and right. people interested in academic art. Yeah, the whole whatever the field, some people call classical realism. Yeah. Or academic revival. Yeah. Whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah. Um. So that's it was from the Ashland School that you entered. You know you. Found yeah. Out of the world. Yeah, and so I I came here. I thought I would be a painter. Uh huh. Painting filled me with, I don't know, existential. Whoa. Oh, yeah? Not in any terrible way, but, like, it, it, I couldn't imagine making a career out of it. How and far then, in did you realize that? 
It was something, honestly, always kind of on the back of my mind, uh. where I was like, how does this translate into making money? And I'm sure huh. that's, like, a concern for every artist yeah. uh, in art school. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And there's people here who seem to have, like, a good way to network or connections that allow them to sell work or mm-hmm. just an aesthetic that people wanted. And I didn't feel like I had that yet or I wasn't sure how to develop that or, like, where I was going with it. And then I started taking sculpture classes, and then I felt like I could I could see the trajectory a little bit more from from that. Like, I could see the work after school. And so that was reassuring. Uh, sculpture and, just made more sense. Yeah. And so, multiple, multiple levels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so how did you end up... You went to Grand Central mm-hmm. after a year mm-hmm. in... In Ashland. Mm-hmm. How long were you in Grand Central before you picked up a hunk of clay and started sculpting? It was in my third year here. So you had two years of drawing and painting. Yeah. And existential, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be like, can I see color? I don't know. <laughs> uh, How'd you pick up clay? How did you... Was clay was sculpting part of, the, part of the program at that time? It was maybe more part of the program than it is now, where it was, I mean, sort of in the same level, I guess, where it's, but I felt like pushed a little more, where it was like a heavily recommended hmm. addition to the program. Like, no one's required to take, to it, take it, but, then but decided. yeah, um, Jacob, the guy who founded the school, yeah. uh, <laughs> he noticed that I hated cast drawings. (laughs) And (laughs) I actually really was lacking motivation a lot to come in. I think finishing, I was really slow in my drawing Mm -hmm. uh, program here. Yeah. And so I was like in my second year finishing my last cast drawing. From the first year. Yeah. Maybe it was even in my third year, God. Where I, and I was, I just hated it. Uh Uh-huh. Where like I stopped coming to school basically uh-huh. to avoid it <laughs> yeah yeah i know and so <laughs> yeah and then that made me feel even more existential about what i was doing because uh-huh. i was like if i can't do this what am i doing and like why can't i do it and you know all those things the sculpting made sense it did and then jacob was like you're clearly losing motivation do something else yeah yeah <laughs> and so he was like go do sculpture and i was like okay. so i went in and I think part of it, too, is it was the only studio in the school at the time that had natural light, so mm. it made me feel like a human being yeah. again after being in, like, a cave for several years. Yeah. And then mm. it was just really tactile and, then like, evolved a lot more movement, and, like, there was, like, a physicality yeah. to it that made it a little easier for me to connect to. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So this, the first sculpture you made, mm-hmm. the first sculpture you made, was that part of the program... How did you end up, what was the backstory with that first sculpture? Did you do practice pieces before that, or was it, like, the very first This big one? No, that little thing that was in the Proco video. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, the terracotta in the back. back Yeah. That one was, I think, after I had sculpted figure for a while. Okay. Not long. There was, like, four or five people who were maybe sculpting at the time, and... Uh, we just decided to start staying after class to do sketches of each other. So uh, that was my first it's your portrait. First portrait. Yeah. Oh, your first portrait. Okay. Yeah. You had done sco- a little bit of sculpture before that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but like looking at that thing, that thing is fucking amazing. 
takes like <laughs> what, like a month or two of sculpting, and then you make that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if I'm looking at that thing, I'm like, how does someone get that good at sculpting with so little experience in it? I think even though I hadn't done figurative sculpture when I was younger, my parents gave me a lot of access to different like hands-on activities, uh-huh. and so I got signed up for really I think a wide variety of craft okay. craft things so like you're a craft person yeah I like I like making things like yeah, yeah. um I don't know like I, I was like super dorky as a kid probably I was in like a lot of 4-H things and so we did <laughs> yeah <laughs> we did like a lot of like leather working and like my mom made sure I knew how to like sew and crochet and knit she signed me up for ceramics classes. So it wasn't like I was unfamiliar with clay. I had just never worked from life or sculpted people before. But I think the familiarity with the medium is so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. The... Mm-hmm. Do you think that the the two years of drawing, maybe painting, but mm-hmm. especially the, the drawing that you had helped you with sculpting? For sure. Yeah? Yeah. I think... There's a really direct connection between drawing and sculpture, especially when you're judging proportion or likeness. I think drawing gives you so many tools and vice versa. Like you could take things you learned from sculpting to drawing and drawing to sculpting. Uh I think that there's like a weird thing that has to happen at some point when you're translating 3D information to 2D information when you're going into drawing. Yeah that you're not doing in sculpture. And I think if you do that a lot in drawing, it can be hard to see three-dimensional things in a three-dimensional way. Yeah, right. You and, get so flattened in your yeah, scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was definitely the case when I started sculpture. But I felt like, I mean, same thing, I'm sure. Maybe, like, when I see you guys sculpt, like, you guys have a good eye. It's just learning how to read this, like, depth in space. In three dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> The drawing had been super helpful, but coming to sculpture revealed to me like a lot of the things I didn't know in drawing, and then also let me know that I was seeing three-dimensional things in a two-dimensional way, uh-huh. which I don't think is inherently bad. It's not good for sculpture, but I think right. it allows greater accuracy when you're drawing in likeness. Right. Yeah, and so now like when I draw, I'm like all over the place. Like I cannot draw. <laughs> as well as I used to, really? I don't think. Oh, yeah. there's, slightly, there's separate skills a little bit. They have a little different... Yeah, like I'm sure like if you were to draw somebody, it would look more like them than if I were to draw somebody. Yeah. And well, like, uh, you could kick our ass at sculpt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, after you started sculpting in your third year and fourth year, you, mm-hmm. you basically thought of yourself as a sculptor from that point on? No, I actually, I was trying to do drawing, or, like, painting and sculpture. Oh, so you, you and kept them up. Yeah, for my third year. And then my fourth year, that was when... Uh, I honestly, it wasn't really maybe born of me. Like, my teacher was, like, I, basically told me, I think you have to pick. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> he, he said I was a pretty good sculptor for a painter. And then... <laughs> he was like, if you actually want to be good at sculpting, he was like, I think you need to commit to it. Yeah. And... Uh, it was kind of a hard decision because actually sculpting had made my drawing and painting so much better. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I'd invested uh, these like years into attaining this skill that I was finally getting good at, like things were clicking. Yeah. And then I was like, now I just throw it away. Um, yeah. 
And so I thought, you know, like, maybe I'll, like, paint in my own time, which has not happened. <laughs> and I, I thought about it for a while, but... And then I ultimately, I, you know, picked sculpture. And it was just because when I was struggling with painting, it felt awful to me. But when I was struggling with sculpture, like, worst days yeah. sculpting didn't feel that bad. It still meant something. Yeah, it was still enjoyable, like, an enjoyable struggle. Yeah. And so, I was like, that seems like the better life decision. Right. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. yeah. So, hmm, what was it like when you're in your fourth year? Did you sort of change the the standard curriculum of uh, of Grand Central to suit your sculpting purposes? Or yeah. Was it, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I'm trying to remember. This like feels like so long ago. <laughs> yeah. um, and if you can go into details, like how yeah. much. Um, what was the sort of a typical day like? I think we had figure for only half the day. And, like, we had a lot less instructed time than people who are in the drawing and painting program because we only had one designated teacher. Mm. And so he would come in twice a week. This is sculpture. Yeah. yeah. And we so we'd get that, like, a critique twice a week, work from the model half a day. for, And then in the afternoons, I think I was just cast copying or mold making okay. or, like, picking some other activity that I was, like, relates to what I'm doing. Okay. Uh, I started working from photographs. Sculpting uh, from photographs? Sculpting from photographs. Crazy. Um, and then, sort of towards the end of my fourth year, I did, maybe not a full, I didn't do a fifth year, but I started to, and then got work. Hmm. Oh, like, at this company. See you guys. Yeah. Um, and the, by that time, there wasn't really a sculpture program here so much. My teacher... Your quit. Uh, my sculpture teacher was Juong Che. He's uh, Korean, and I think he like. I don't say this lightly. I think he's maybe like at least top five best representational sculptors in the United States. Yeah. I say that pretty comfortably. Yeah. Um, he's incredible. Uh, so I feel really, really lucky to have been here at the same time he was here, and to. Um, have had him as a teacher. I think he's the best teacher I've ever had. Ah. Yeah. And so that was a huge part, too, in picking sculpting. I guess I should mention that. Like, having a teacher you trust implicitly, I think, is is great. Yeah. Because otherwise, you have to take everything sort of with a grain of salt. Right, yeah. right. But this guy you trusted? Yeah. Every time he said something, I'd be like, okay, that's right. Uh, <laughs> it just and seemed that, like his judgment was so accurate, like you... Yeah, and he wasn't, I felt like a lot of his critiques in school weren't angled from, like, his aesthetic or, like, what he thought was right. It was just, like, a matter-of-fact, like, empirical Mm. thing Mm. that I, like, if I thought about it, I was like, this is right. I can't argue with this. And so, you know, that happens enough. And then at some point, I guess it's maybe like like a faith thing where you're saying, like, this person's been right. So many times, even if I don't see it, I'm just putting, you know, some faith into their hands that they are right. Uh Uh, But I think that's really important when you're learning because I think we all have that, like, hesitation. And, like, we, I don't know if you feel this, but, like, I don't want to be wrong. Yeah, (laughs) And so (laughs) if someone tells you something and it's uncomfortable, you're like, no. But you have to, like, when you're learning, you have to be, like, withhold that 
and just be like, maybe, maybe. and just go with it. Maybe I am wrong. Yeah. Maybe and right. So if you have a teacher that you can trust, that's huge. I think it alleviates a lot of the stress of knowing whether you should trust or like listen to someone's critique on your work or development. Yeah. So, um, so back to I guess your fourth year of sculpting or your your, your regimen. What mm-hmm. did it look like when you were training as a sculptor? You were spending. I was spending the eight hours a day in the studio. Okay. Like I think, at least. 20 hours of the week, we'll say, were figurative, or, like, we had a model. And then the other half was sort of decided by me on okay. in some way. And then okay. my teacher started talking about, like, what it would be to be a professional sculptor. And mm. so he started, it was kind of like a, it felt like sculpture boot camp, where he was saying, like, you could achieve a competency at something and he was saying you know like everybody in this school is competent like I think if you gave anyone here enough time to do a drawing or a sculpture and make it good that they could do it and he was saying like the true skill set is how fast like how well do you know the subject and it's shown by how fast you can do it how fast you can execute it yeah yeah it's like it's almost like a live performance Yeah. yeah and so he was saying like you know, the slower you are in the real world, the lower you're hourly, because usually you're yeah. paid per project. Yeah. And so he was saying, like, I'm so fast, like, I can finish something in an hour that might take somebody seven. So yeah. he's like, I can undercut them and do a better job, right. and I'm still making more money than them per hour. <laughs> I was like, damn. And so I think we work really slowly in this program, uh-huh. or at least when I was here, yeah. the program was even slower yeah. than it is now. You've gotten it so slow right now. Oh, it's so much faster than it was. <laughs> yeah. And so I remember he was like, my teacher also held the Giuliano sculpture as like this, like, if you can sculpt this, you can sculpt anything. Yeah, Giuliano. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. And so I remember I was like, all right, I'm going to sculpt the Giuliano. This was starting my fourth year. Yeah, this and Michelangelo then, bust. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, I did it, I think, in like... I don't know, like, 20 hours, and I was like, that was fast. Yeah, yeah. And then he's like, that was when he was like, I I could do it in four. And I was like, what? Uh Uh-huh. And I just hadn't had any scale for a speed, I don't think, before that, because all the work here is so slow. Right, right. And then I didn't believe him, actually, Um, and then he did it. And and so, the like, watching someone do something, it, like, broke down these barriers in my mind of like what was possible and how quickly it would be possible yeah and like with that I feel like there was this huge change in how I was thinking about working not that it had to be this slow thing but as like um that by trying to add speed as an element to your practice you'd force yourself to weed out inefficient thoughts and so you would become better and better in a way that you wouldn't if you gave yourself unlimited amounts of time. Right. And it's not that it's bad to go slow. Like, I learn more going slow, too, but I think you have to do both to yeah. progress well. It's, like, an essential element yeah. to practice. It's a certain type of practice that you have to, you have, to have both, right? Yeah. Just like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, like, you know, that Tim Ferriss four-hour work week thing? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, until then, I hadn't thought of speed as this crucial thing Uh and then I realized 
when I'm forcing myself to go quickly, I find out what I really know. Yeah. And then that's eye-opening in a way that just working as this sort of general time frame isn't. And even right. in this program, a lot of times, like, we don't finish things. But my teacher was like, you always have to finish. You always have to finish. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know the time frame? Finish. Those are both really good professional yeah. skills to have. Yeah. And so that was a totally different attitude for me to, yeah. like, be accurate with my time and know how to judge my hours and pace myself accordingly. That is entirely different from a, a lot of the working at it, uh, practices at the school. Was your teacher, uh, did he go to Grandson's or, or was he coming no. out of he was coming out of Korea. Korea? Yeah. Did he go to an atelier in Korea? He went to a contempt... Like, he was actually an abstract sculptor. Really? Um, which blows my mind. Yeah. Because <laughs> his figurative work is so good. Um, and he wanted to do figurative work, but at the time it was, like, really, like, culturally, like, a faux pas to yeah. want to do representational art. And yeah. so he was doing this, you know, more conceptual work just because that's what was done. But he always wanted to do this figurative work and he was saying like in high school he was doing what we were doing here in sculpture like he was making traditional cast copies from the age of like I don't know 13 on because it's just part of their their normal school education oh my god and so I was like that's something I like I don't even know if it's possible to for me to catch up to where he is because yeah. I started sculpting when I was 23 yeah yeah, so yeah. if you're a genius and you start at 14, I think you're going to be better than most people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, the speed thing, let me think about that. So, the speed thing is something that I think about a lot, too. It's something that's really important to me, and... It, it does seem like an essential... It really forces you to cut the bullshit and to focus yeah. on what's essential. Uh, let's talk more about this, uh, the essential skill thing. Yeah. Um, what are the essential things that you focus on? If you have to do a Giuliano bust in... Yeah. Um, four hours. Mm-hmm. How are you going to do that? What are you going to focus on? I mean, really... In sculpture, I think it's the relative relations of the large masses. And I think coming from where we do, which is, I feel like, especially when we're sculpting faces or people, we focus so much on features and detail and see them as these crucial landmarks. Yeah. But for me, those, like, I, it's almost like ignoring that they're on the face and uh-huh. that what is really important are those very very large relationships and then once those large relationships are established then you can subdivide them so quickly and easily to add that smaller information that make up the features yeah but until that point if you you try to sculpt the features before your large information is developed it's just going to slow you down exponentially right by large relationships what do you mean so with the giuliano he has a really strong relationship just between his head and his neck yeah. Like, the whole mass of his head is slightly tilted. Yeah. His neck is at a very strong angle. So, in like, the most basic way, if I was just thinking about, like, an egg and a tube, I'm trying to establish the ro- tilt right. of the his egg-shaped head yeah. to the tube of his neck. Yeah. And until I have that, I'm not trying to look at anything else. Mm-hmm. 
And it's basically just going from these most basic, largest shapes and getting smaller and smaller yeah. once those click into place. Like you would move from head to neck mm-hmm. to eyebrow width to mouth to eyebrow width. Yeah. And I think there's like, maybe it's like a go slow to go fast thing where I feel like people never want to spend enough time on that large information because uh-huh. it seems like less relevant in some way because you you maybe don't see the features or the face in it. Yeah. But I think if you spend more time on that to really make sure you hit that on the head, mm-hmm. everything else flies by. But I think right. where we end up going back and forth and sort of not just moving forward in like a, like a continuous path towards being done is jumping ahead of what our, jumping ahead of what our information will support in our pieces, if that makes sense. Yeah, like you, you don't want to, do you mean that you don't want to start sculpting a tear duct when you haven't established where the corners Yeah, the it would are. be like if you're drawing a head on a piece of paper and you just draw an eyeball and yeah. you perfectly model that eyeball right. before establishing the rest before of the you face. Before the rest of the head. Yeah, yeah, like you don't know that the eye's in the right place. Right. Like, and you might have to erase the whole thing that you spent so much time on. Yeah. And so I just don't want to spend time on those things until I know the exact place they'll be in. And the yeah. only way I know the exact place they'll be in is if those large relationships of just the, I don't know, like forehead to the cheekbones to like the muzzle of the face are, right. are working. Right. Working general to specific. It's like uh, basically building sort of blueprint mm-hmm. um, for a house. That's actually an a analogy used at this school. Yeah. Knows. So, okay. What would you, what would the, like the first two hours um, of Juliana be spent on? Um, the Giuliano is at least 50 pounds of clay so let's say like the first 40 minutes I'm just putting clay on Um, just massing putting this egg in this tube yeah and so I'm playing with those relationships Mm -hmm. until I feel like they're close enough that I want to measure the what I have yeah and then from there it's just a lot of measuring the largest proportions and in sculpture because we can take direct measurements that's huge yeah and so if I take a measurement then I just try to really mark that and as I'm going know that all the information I see has to fit within this like rational structure I'm setting up all the visual information I'm observing needs to work within that set yeah this sounds really logical it is yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so if I can really hold myself true to the measurements I'm taking, it means I won't exceed them. And I don't have to worry about, like, is this right, is this wrong, Mm -hmm. because I'm holding on to this framework. And so if I can do that effectively, then I think I'll move pretty quickly. But it's when I'm like, oh, his face seems taller to me, and I, like, drop maybe the total height of his head Uh below what I measure just because I feel like it needs to drop. It means I'm not solving for maybe what's actually wrong like maybe it just needs to be wider and that's why it feels tall but i'm exceeding my measurement to make something feel more correct it's like you want to have you want to have a key basically like yeah here's a here's a point that i understand i understand yeah it's like a geometric theorem i want to have one measurement that i'm just perfectly confident in yeah from the chin to the eyebrow basically it doesn't even have to be a measurement like you uh-huh. pick a point like uh-huh. you could like any point on your sculpture can be right because you can relate all other points to that yeah, point. Yeah. And so once you pick your landmark, 
then everything else has to relate to that and each other within okay. that set. As long as that one, that landmark doesn't change. Yeah. What, for, do you have a favorite landmark that you pick, or does it vary? I use the chin, typically. Okay. Uh, I know a lot of people use the top of the head, but I feel mm -hmm. like because of hair, it feels mm -hmm. a little less concrete to me. Okay. So it's like you pick the chin, and it's like, how far is the left eyebrow from the outside of the left eyebrow from the chin versus how far is the eyeball from the chin, the tear ducts, the other side of the eye, yeah. that kind of thing? I guess I use... I worry less about widths, so I worry yeah. more about linear heights, just because uh -huh. if you set, like, the height of the eye wrong, you'd have to restructure the whole eye socket to move it, okay. where if it's too narrow, you're just bumping out some information a little bit. Yeah. And so all the initial measurements I take are heights. I think that's that's basically it. It's and mostly it's just, about the heights, not so much the widths. Yeah, and then it's just running through this checklist of... Um, like, are these measurements working? Uh -huh. Like, are these tilts working? And then as I'm working around a model or the sculpture, like if I'm sculpting the Giuliano, I'm just being hyper careful about how I line myself up between my work and the thing I'm, I'm referencing. Yeah. And the better I line myself up, the more the information makes sense all the way around as I apply it. So I'm not fixing information that I ruined working from one side. That doesn't apply right. to the other. You want everything that you put down to make sense in all, like in three dimensions. Angles, yeah. <laughs> and to not have to go back over and edit anything. Yeah, so if I'm reading something well in depth and like orienting myself well to read information, then theoretically all that information should be in the exact right place all around the model. Mm -hmm. So when I add information from spot A, when I move to spot B, yeah. I'm like, oh, great, it all works from here too. Right. And you're constantly turning, going around the model over and over again as you're sculpting. Oh, yeah, super you don't rapidly. Get stuck in a certain, a yeah. Point. Mm -hmm. Okay. I remember when, in, in my sculpture class, you were telling me uh, that you, there's like two major phases to sculpting. Mm -hmm. This is how I heard it. It was like, yeah. you want the stupid block in. Like, here's just, you know, just like a really primitive, here's my shapes, mm -hmm. here's where everything is, here's the border of everything, and then mm -hmm. to re what most people, I guess beginners do, they really get seduced by the features, and they really yeah. just like put all this tender loving care into the features, mm -hmm. um, you save that for like the very end, like total time spent on the shape, the really detailed shape of the eyelid and all that stuff, yeah. that's the last like 20% of the sculpture? In a way, I guess I just... I feel like people separate features from the face. Yeah. And I think that none of it's separated. So the yeah. development of likeness doesn't feel like you can like you can't just stick features on a face. Like they're supported by the underlying structure. So I feel like as I develop that underlying structure, the features are inevitably becoming what they are and what they should be. So I don't feel like that there's a point where I'm like, now I'm really sculpting the mouth. I'm like, I'm always sculpting the mouth when I'm sculpting the muzzle of the face. It's just at some point I'm going to articulate maybe like the part of like where the lips meet. But that to me, yeah, maybe that's like way further down the road. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like I'm not sculpting the mouth up until that point. Like the, the sculpting of the mouth goes in with the indication of structural volume, which is something happening from an early point. Um, I think people think about like the nose being like putting in the nostrils and mm -hmm. like 
like that kind of information. Right. But if you're thinking about it in a volumetric way, in a more abstract way, then yeah. it's really just maybe the nose is a bad example because that's like the one feature that like sticks out of the face. But everything's set into the face and supported by that deeper, larger structure. Mm-hmm. How long will you spend before you go into the details? Like at what stage do you start refining and really making um, stuff look hyper detailed? Oh, very close to the end. Yeah. Like most of the time I think is is spent with a larger rake. Would or it be within the last hour, the last thirty minutes? Maybe like the last forty five. Last forty five minutes. And like I like to like if I say like I have four hours, I like to plan on being done before out like before the four hour mark just yeah. so that if anything goes wrong I have like some cleanup time. I don't want to be like, and if everything goes perfectly, I'm done at four hours. Because, you know, when does it ever go perfectly? Every time something goes wrong for me in a sculpture, it's at that that larger scale. Yeah. Like, there's no small, real small scale mistakes, I don't think. The decisions that have the most effect on the sculpture and most determine its believability or its, you know, quality are these big not apparently obvious yeah like a structural like misset yeah i think you'll start to read read quality in a different way yeah right right and so when i'm correcting students work a lot of times i feel like the strongest impulse in sculpture is to want to make a smooth surface right off the bat yeah and then a lot of the (laughs) (laughs) and then a lot of times that surface is like not formy or structural or like, has a lot of undulations because we're smoothing mm-hmm. with our fingers. But it'll look good to students because you're looking just at, like, a surface yeah. quality of something. Yes. Like, a lot of times, like, my rakes are super coarse. So, like, they make crazy marks all over the clay. But for me, I'm, like, like basically, like, don't see those. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just looking at the relationship of these volume volumes I'm building in mm-hmm. space. And so when I'm looking at... And what I'm sculpting is under, like, this deep structure. And I think that's something (laughs) you start to be able to project forward from. But I think when you're starting, you have to finish pieces to see how what you're doing at the beginning affects the end. Yeah, that word structure Mm -hmm. is, I think, the key. And it's something that I just keep on... It's so easy to overlook at first. Like, you don't really put that much... You don't see the importance of structure when you start out. Yeah, and it's not, <clears throat> it's not maybe the most gratifying place to spend time on. Right. Because you don't see it at first. You right. feel like you're struggling with something that you're like, I feel like it's done. I need to move on now. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that moving through the process several times is crucial. As you're starting, I think you have to move towards finishing to get that additional information to see the structural information that's wrong. But you're going to start catching that earlier and earlier as you continue your practice. I think the thing I tell people most is to move more, like to to move from where you're observing if you can't figure something out, like to move around your model, your object, or to follow like a body of form. Like if I'm looking at something on the figure I can't figure out, I'm not going to just keep staring at it from the same point. I'm going to get closer to the model or above or below or just a different perspective, like trying to understand it from a variety of angles, because that's the only way I can understand it in three dimensions. Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of times people try to solve things in a really stagnant way yeah. um, while sculpting, and it, it's like just... Like staying from one viewpoint the entire time? Yeah, and like to... that to me isn't, like, a, it's not a three-dimensional approach to 
learning yeah. something about the body. Yeah. And I feel like this took me a really long time to figure out where my teacher would always call me lazy. Uh-huh. And I found it really upsetting because I was like, I work really hard. And, <laughs> uh-huh. and then I realized at some point it was about the quality of how I was applying myself. And so while I was putting in a lot of hours, I was actually not that focused or conscientious yeah, right. when I was working. Right. And so I realized there's like an attitude to the quality of your attention that matters. And so I think, like I don't, I feel bad when I see people working really hard, really long hours and being frustrated because I don't know that it's actually the best approach. Like yeah. I think you will probably inevitably improve, but if you're working unconsciously, like when things go right or wrong, you're not really there. So you don't really know why you failed or why you succeeded. Right. But if you're fully aware of like what you're thinking while you're working, what you're attempting while you're working, and you're really sort of like in your brain <laughs> while you're trying to do things, I yeah. think you're you're going to become a much more efficient learner. Like, mm-hmm. if you can articulate and make tangible your, your immediate goals. And I don't mean, like, make this thing look like that thing. Like, that's too broad. I think it has yeah. to be, like, I'm trying to figure out why my quadricep does not look right on this leg that's bent. Yes, yes. And so then how do you do that? And I think everyone at the school is, like, bright and talented, and you guys can apply yourselves. Like, most people can apply themselves in that way. So it's important, like, it's really important when you're practicing. You want, when you're practicing, you don't want to be thinking about lunch or, like, gossip. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be... Like, I often will ask students, like, what are you thinking when you're doing this? And a lot of the times, people don't know. Yeah, and, yes, yes. And I'm like, that's that's the first issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> and so, if you don't know what you're thinking then I don't know how you you really go from there. I think you're on some sort of weird autopilot. Yeah, exactly. And so you have to be running the, sh- the ship, <laughs> yeah. so to speak, right. I think, to, to be an effective learner. Yeah. The, how do you get yourself into that state where you're really, like, just zoned in? It honestly started really basically for me because I am, like, a... I was a great perpetrator of the autopilot Uh Um, (laughs) and it felt like once I was so into autopilot I could not reel myself out or like by the time I did I was just like I don't even want to look at what I did it's like a morass yeah you get stuck in it yeah Yeah. and so it was it's really simple just like constant loop in my head of like what am I doing articulating that to myself and then just also asking myself really directly like am I aware of what I'm doing now Mm -hmm. so just like checking in mentally like every few minutes to make sure I wasn't just like moving my hand and not thinking yeah and so bringing back to what my teacher said about not being lazy I realized it wasn't about the hours I put in or how dedicated I felt it was about the quality of my attention because I think in sculpture because it is so literal you can solve everything yourself but you have to be on like you have to be mentally like knowing what you're looking like trying to figure out I think as long as you're not, like, trying to put away your preconceptions, being actively engaged and curious, you'll, you'll be able to solve everything yourself. But yeah. it requires that really active engagement. Right.
Is there anything else that you think about as a fundamental to sculpture? Like, honestly, like, enjoyment. Like, you're not going to be good at something you yeah. don't enjoy. Yeah. Like, it's going to feel like a struggle. Like, when you... Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's not going to look fun. Like, like, the end product isn't going to look fun. Like, that's not going to be comfortable. <laughs> so I think that's huge. Like, Like, there's no reason to be in art if you don't enjoy it because it's hard and it doesn't pay a lot of money yeah uh maybe it does if you're you know like better at marketing than i am but (laughs) but you know that's like the essential reason you're you're doing it right is Mm -hmm. because you love it right and so i know especially in this program a lot of people go into sculpture because they're like it's going to make me better at what i actually want to do but there's like a sense Mm. of like resentment or like dislike to the practice and I feel like if you can find the enjoyment in it you are going to improve so much more yeah like it doesn't have to be I know that feeling so well that like I have to do something unpleasant for a greater purpose eventually but maybe that's not even a good idea maybe you should only find the practices that feel really good yeah and I'm not sure where the balance is between being like I can enjoy this and not just think of it as, like, a stepping stone. And, like, right. even if it is, like, to say, like, to fully commit yourself to that stepping stone in the moment you're in it. Like, there's no point in being here if you're not here. Yeah. You're just creating an unpleasant experience for yourself that yeah. you're not going to reap the benefits of because your your head's not there um, mm-hmm. fully. Yeah, like like you leaving painting for sculpting. Yeah. In a way. Yeah, and it's not to say that I don't enjoy painting, like, but, like, I pick sculpture for that reason. Yeah. I feel like if you enjoy what you do, you're going to get better at it. Yeah. Yeah. If you were, let's just say you have a little sculpting to do, like yeah. a cabin in the woods, and you make yeah. these sculptures, and people pay you lots of money for them, you're making yeah. the exact art you want to make, mm-hmm. um, uh, and then one day, this is a teaching question, yeah. three kids show up, 18-year-olds, yeah. show up at your doorstep, and they say, uh, uh, you're like a master sculptor. They're like, mm-hmm. master, <laughs> teach me your yeah. ways. Let's just, let's just, let's yeah. run with this. Okay. Um, uh, you know, like the whole fight club thing, like Project Mayhem, yeah. they sit on the porch. <laughs> yeah. It's, all right, and then you're like, all right, come in. Yeah. You can sweep the toilets, and then I'll teach you how to sculpt. Mm-hmm. If you're going to take these three kids under your wing and they want to be the very best, like no one ever was, mm-hmm. um, what sort of curriculum would you set for them? What would you sh- teach them to practice? Uh, how would you set up their days so that they could become really good sculptors? I do like the setup at GCA in a lot of ways. I just think, at least for <clears throat> starting, I feel like the hours should be shorter because I think you can't cultivate that kind of like focused attention Over. in an extended way. Like I think that's something you can build up to, yeah, but you the can't. Eight hours a day thing. Yeah, like yeah. you can't be focused for eight hours a day right off the bat. Yeah. Like your brain is not designed to do that. Right, right. And like I can feel that even in myself, like it, like I can focus for longer and longer periods of time. Yes. Hi. Hello, the longer I've been working. Um, I really think sculpting from life is just the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. I know that's really broad. But I think, you know, focused hours, sculpting from life, mm-hmm. um, and you're going to get good. I think a lot of people don't work from 
life. And I also think it's hard to do it in a vacuum. So I think it'd be better to be in a community. Like that's why I think the advantage of this program is, yeah. is huge is because you're not, you don't have an unclear goal. Like you see lots of people doing variations of a theme uh-huh. all very well. Mm-hmm. And I think it clarifies the direction you're trying to go in, mm-hmm. in a technical skill set. So I think it can be good to have one teacher, but I think for a student it's preferable to be surrounded by multiple examples. Yeah, right. right. And so I guess my ideal <laughs> teaching situation wouldn't be like alone in the mountains because I wouldn't yeah, want to be yeah, like yeah. the only voice these students are exposed to. I feel like that'd be really limiting. Right. There needs to be a sort of culture yeah. that's not really... Like, authoritarian, almost? Yeah. Not, not strictly authoritarian. No, like, almost, like, more like a guild, we'll say, guild, yeah. guild system, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's why there was such a great craft culture around that time, is because there'd be, like, master craftsmen uh-huh. who'd orchestrate or organize groups, but they led because, not because they were just given power, their power came from depth of knowledge and experience. Yeah. And yeah. so I think systems like that really create like beautiful communities for young artists to achieve what they want to in. Yeah. But it has to be born of not just like inherent like power, but power through knowledge. Right. And that's where that, I think that trust comes in. Right. And like you listen to somebody because they know more than you. Yeah. And you accept that. Yeah. Right. There are people that you're just willing to throw away your own ego and your yeah. own little precious ideas for it. Yeah. And so I think that's really critical in a learning environment. God, it's kind of the same thing. Like, I noticed that I receive a lot of my political opinions and shit <laughs> from people yeah. that I really <laughs> trust and respect. Yeah. It's like, uh, kind of the same thing. Yeah, like someone has figured it out, and they're going to be able to condense that learning into a much shorter time frame for you because yeah. they've gone through this legwork. Yeah. And so you're going to be able to achieve so much more in your lifetime because of this, if you have that system. Right. And, like, you could go out on your own and figure things out, but, like, why? Right. (laughs) So much harder. Yeah. So I think finding a good teacher is critical, but hopefully it's more than just one teacher. It's, like, a, it's a group. Yeah. Yeah. It's more dynamic. It's more mm, organic, almost. Yeah. And I think in that system, people who lead in, like, a guild system, Uh they don't stay on top. By not progressing, like ideally, everyone in that group is not stagnant. Like yeah, you yeah. continue to listen to whomever is telling you things because they're also continuing to know more as you know more, right. or it's they're no longer leading. Of, yeah, yeah, it's not based off of you know inheritance or yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Just like dumb power. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Um, what do you think about the future of? Um, realist education or like this whole where would you like to see art realism going oh wow you know what i mean sort of that's a really big question Um, (laughs) well i'll give you my thoughts on it and you can tell me if it's not really directed enough at this question um i dislike some contemporary art not due to like just its inherent content but the level of care behind it and so I think that there's a lot of art produced quickly by people that haven't um, put depth into studying something beyond themselves and so 
I think something really beautiful about this practice is that you're looking outside of your your own interpretation of the world and trying to put away these preconceptions of your preconceived reality mm-hmm. and see, like, if you will, the world more as it is. And obviously yeah. that's shaded by your perspective, but it's this this sort of exploration outside of yourself and finding beauty and meaning that you can um, maybe interpret in a way that resonates with other people because your reality is moving closer to an agreed-upon experience of the world. And so I think that's really beautiful and meaningful, but also and a lot of what we do could be super dry and repetitious. Mm. Um, but I think that kind of study lends itself, that slow study, that deeper study lends itself to or it goes hand in hand with searching for like answers to like the universal philosophical questions that people always have like why are we here what is life what is love yeah, what right. is beauty like yeah. where like what's the place we have in this world mm-hmm. um what's like why do we re- like how do we relate to each other like yeah. all these things yeah. that i think are like the universal questions we all have as humans yeah. and i feel like this kind of slow practice encourages that kind of thought, which I think is critical. But I feel like when you produce art quickly, it's easy to have these more superficial topics or to justify Mm. it in a way that's less truly meaningful. Like, you can say nice things and justify anything, but it it lacks that depth. But I think you can produce contemporary art that's purely abstract, but if it's born of a deeper study, it will resonate with more people. But I think a lot of it isn't that. Yeah. It's stuff that people slap on a canvas because they don't want to take the time to study something yeah. deeply because it's yeah. hard. Right. But I think it's hard because you're growing. Right. And growth and change is right. inherently a struggle and difficult. Right. So I think for me that a lot of this practice has to do with becoming, like this sounds really corny, like becoming a better person or like mm-hmm. to, to progress as a person. Yeah. Which progresses your art, yeah, and I think allows your art to be greater, because you're yeah. you're moving beyond yourself and this self centric view of the world. Yeah, and like not that it's wrong, but there's something fast about it. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. like it's not. It feels like angry clown paintings. Like why? Yeah, like like the, the, <laughs> yeah. the shtick, shtick kind of. Paintings. Yeah. Like here's my gimmick. Yeah. Yeah. Like to be something other than like very large or like very something like yeah. to. And, like, not to just justify it by using a lot of words like dichotomy. And, right, right. Yes. <laughs> and like, to, to make art that feels very authentic to where you are and what you feel. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe art that requires some sort of skill set. And I think, I don't know, maybe I equated art for a long time with craftsmanship, which I don't think it inherently has to be. Yeah. But I feel like it, it needs some of that depth of study. Mm-hmm. And maybe it doesn't need to be inherently well crafted, but there's something about that, the quality of study that feels important to me. Yeah. So I think if there could be some way to combine that with more contemporary themes, whether it's politically right. or like that relate more to what's happening now yeah. in, a, in our society, I think that would be great. Yeah. One of the reasons that I started this podcast is because people are interested in mastery. Yeah. Um, and that whole, you know, that transformative process that it has on you. 
Yeah. But for some reason, especially in art education, mm-hmm. it's kind of lacking. Yeah. And I also think there's a focus on genius, which I don't know is healthy. Inherent genius? Yeah. Or like the, you know, like the, the voice that speaks from within? Yeah. yeah. Which I'm like, like, I feel like in any other field, like hard work is like a given. Like you work yes, hard yeah, to master given. it. Like you're it's just good or you're bad. Yeah. And, and like, hard work is an idea in the arts. It's almost, mm, it seems like almost like a conservative, like, yeah, and I, I, yeah, like, and I don't, I don't think it is, and I don't think it should be. Right. And so, like, I almost, like, I argue against genius in art, because yeah. so few people are geniuses. Right. <laughs> like, how many geniuses can there be in art? And it's not to say that there's incredibly gifted and talented people, but what do you do with that? Right. And how do you apply it? And yeah. that you can, I think, achieve great skill in this if you work hard, but people are told from, I think, a pretty early age, like, oh, you're just gifted or you're not in this field. Yeah. And that's it. Not that if you work hard, you can attain this. What, what do you see as, you know, a next level of art education in the future happening? Like, because people, a lot of people want to learn how to yeah. do this stuff. And it's not really offered in many places. What do you see? Do you imagine the future? Oh, man, I think it would be really nice to have, well, I don't even know if I, I guess I would call it art, art education, but I think exposure to empirically good design mm-hmm. <laughs> at a younger age yes. is really important. Because yeah. I think even for me coming here, my taste was not that good. Yeah. And it's just because I hadn't been to expose, I just hadn't been exposed to yes. much. Yes. And so I can feel now I read quality in a vastly different way but now like when I talk to even my family and they're very intelligent lovely people we have very different tastes and I think it's I I don't think their taste is bad but I think our taste is born from what we were exposed to and for me when I look back on the art that I used to like it some of it feels very weak now and so I think exposure to design is just at like a young age yeah. and like a comfortability with that inherently lends itself to better taste, which will push people towards more aesthetically pleasing things like in a yeah. real qualitative sense, not like right. in that superficial, like, Oh, it's big and bright. Right. I like it. Or like, right. Oh, there's a lot of detail. It's great right. way. But like in a deep, deep way, it's got to have yeah. something more captivating to it. Yeah. Something that stays with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any, do you have any practice, any like ideas that you'd want to? If you're a president or something, <laughs> any laws you would enact yeah. or anything you would do to make taste happen? I just feel like that kind of art class should be like even. I don't even know if it's you could call it art. Let's like maybe it's like rendering or like yeah. modeling because it, it doesn't feel it's like definition. Drawing. Yeah, like art to me inherently feels like a craft. Because it's a skill set mm-hmm. based on tradition, yeah. and you're not putting yourself into it. Yeah. You're objectively saying, this is a quality way of making something, and I'm trying to do that. Which, to me, sounds like craft over art. But mm-hmm. I think when you're making something, there's so many practices that go into it. Like, one, it's that judgment of quality, like what is good, what is bad. And then, two, you're, you're thinking pretty dynamically to problem solve like when I'm doing this if I did this it would be easier to make that which I don't think we get a lot of in school 
you're not really understanding a process and thinking through it. You're just being told what to do, mm-hmm. and that's the process, and shut yeah. up and listen. Yeah, so shut up and think, listen, <laughs> what the teacher says. Yeah, so I think if you're given something where you're your hands on making something, you inevitably begin to problem solve in a way where you're thinking creatively. And I think that's like what people are doing who are succeeding now in the world where the world is like less rote. Like you don't get, you know, a job you stay at for 30 years. Like mm-hmm. people are like, I feel like the whole system of how people work has changed so dramatically Yeah. that, that I think to, to nurture young people into a way of thinking that's so uncreative and so unself-driven is just detrimental. Yeah. And I think by asking people to make things and figure out how to make things, you're teaching people how to problem-solve dynamically, which is a skill set that will serve you throughout your whole life. Right. And it means you're not taking things as a given. You're looking at something and saying, if this is the process, how can it be better? Yeah. And I think that's a huge part of the like craft culture is that process-oriented problem-solving where you're always trying to figure out a better way to do something and not taking it as a given. Like you're not saying, someone told me this is how you do it, this is how I do it. You're right. saying, I understand this is what my end goal is, what's the best way of getting yeah, there. Yeah, it's open-ended. Yeah, and that open openness allows for so much. Right. Yeah, so that's exciting to me. I think I would want to implement things that involve more uh, more self-driven problem-solving. Yeah, and that kind of self-driven problem-solving leads to that sort of <clears throat> fully focused attention kind of thing. Yes, yeah. because you're not just like going through emotion. You're thinking about the entire arc of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. You're fully engaged. Yeah. It's like climbing a rock wall. Yeah. And you're like, oh, because, because there's so many ways to climb up the same rock face. Yeah, everyone's going to do it differently. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, literally, you have to focus your entire attention upon this wall. Yeah. Or you're going to fall. Yeah. So I think that's a really different way of doing things than right now what the, our school systems are. Yeah. It's more like, here, here's the hold that you use. Yeah. Now do this. <laughs> now grab like this. Yeah. And if you don't do it like this, you're just a bad climber. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that it it also that puts a lot of fear of failure in people. Yeah. Because you're 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 punished for failing. Right. And so I think when you're making something, when you fail, you're going to figure out a better way of doing it. Yeah. It, like your mistakes teach you, and to not mark failure as like a negative thing inherently. Mm-hmm. Like. Yeah, like, I think that, too, is huge. Like, people don't try things now because they're scared of failing. And that changes how you lead your whole life. Right. If you don't think of failure as an inevitable mark of trying something, but as something you're just going to avoid at all costs. Yeah. You're going to limit yourself a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I had a teacher that that always said that, like, we had to have a woodshop in schools. Yeah. Like, you got to just engage autonomous yeah and the um and the creative part of a person yeah yeah and i think too to like not do that with kids in schools discredits their capabilities a huge amount right yeah because i feel that i feel that art and craft have i think that creativity can go to both art and craft you can use your creative powers yeah and like honestly this maybe goes back way further like in sculpture it felt more like a guild system to me, like supported. Like I think to be an artist is very hard because you're you're basically unsupported. Yeah. Like you are an artist. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like in my field, I am amongst a group of people, and collectively we get work. Yeah. I'm not just bringing in jobs for myself. Right. Like it's this whole community operating to do that, like collectively supporting each other. Right. Which makes it feel a lot more possible and doable. Right. It's like we're stronger together. You need to see Rise of the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I think there's maybe there's like a connection of like genius with artists and like this sort of like unattractive practicality to craft. But to me what's really beautiful is like some in between world of those two things. Yeah. yeah. Craft and art. Yeah. Going together. Yeah. Hand in hand. Yeah. Paul and Dionysus. Yeah. Fanship. <laughs> yeah. But like the like and to me maybe it's like the marriage of like form and concept. Like we're both Yeah. <laughs> like we're both speak equally. Yeah. And are like equally important to the work. Yeah. Because intuition and logic, and you talk about this, like, mm-hmm. intuition and logic don't have to be at odds. No, I think they both inform each other, and I feel like they're often really separated. But I think, yeah, yeah like, I don't know, like, with this program, I think we lean very heavily, obviously, to form. Right. And then in a lot of, like, more contemporary liberal arts schools, they lean concept. really heavily on concept. But I think if we're talking about, like, ideal art in the future, that both of those are integral to whatever art that's right. being created. Right. Like, critical theory is entirely absent from this program. Yeah. At GCA. But in mm-hmm. grad school, critical theory is, there's almost no practical, here's how to sculpt. Yeah. In grad school. And, like, but can you, yeah, yeah, but can you imagine people who have both of the, like, access to yes. both of those in one place? Oh, right. my God, it would be amazing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think that's pretty good. We, we cool. dug out a lot of good stuff. <laughs> is there anything that I didn't touch on? Anything that you just want to say? Um, no, I think maybe, like, doing what I'm doing now, it feels like a lifestyle in the way, like, you're saying, like, a martial arts philosophy becomes, like, like a lens in which you view your world or yeah. live your life, and yeah. so I'm sure sculptures become a little bit of that to me. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, but that happens, like, no matter what you do, like, somehow that becomes, like, analogous to your experience of the world. Right. Yeah, analogy. I think that there is really, really difficult to articulate concepts that you're... Maybe it's, like, more like an experiential thing when it's analogy, because you can... Most analogies have to do with, like, maybe an experience that speaks to this larger concept, and you can only understand it in this more abstract way that analogy provides, I don't know, the solution for it. Do you mean that you can, life being complex, mm-hmm. you can understand life easier by creating a simple analogy yeah. of sculpture? You can understand life by sculpting in a way. Yeah, like, whereas if you're trying to, like, like literally explain these, like, deep questions or experiences, like, I mean, if you've read, like, a heavy philosophy book, it's really hard yeah. to get through, and you're... You, it's, I think, harder to understand how that relates to you in your life. But I think if you can create analogy through your experience or how you learn or what you do in your life, it becomes, it's how you apply your understanding of larger 
things to your experience. <laughs> it's like a substrate almost for yeah. understanding. Mm-hmm. I have like people do that definitely like who are like various sports, like I don't know, like <laughs> people talk about like like flow states and sports. Yeah. And I think all of this is like this connection to like some really basic experience of experience. Yeah, some basic human experience. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Got deep. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Where, where can we find you? Um, I'm on Instagram as Sapiens. That's S-A-Y-P-I-E-N-C-E. Okay. And then on my website, which is just zodu4sculpture.com. .com. And uh, you recently had a course or a video course. Oh, yeah. With yeah. Stan Prokopinko. Proko. Mm-hmm. Um, so, probably everybody knows. Yeah, that's available on his website. Okay. <laughs> cool. So, you have, like, people can, if they want to, they can see how you do a sculpture step-by-step. Step, yeah. Basically. A mm-hmm. portrait bust step-by-step. Step, yeah. Behind the music or whatever. Yeah. Was there before. <laughs> yeah. And that's at proco.com? It's at, yeah, proco.com slash do four. Do four. Okay. Cool. Right. Thanks so much, though. Thanks, Joseph. So as always, the things that we talked about and we just talked about are linked in the show notes. You can you know, do what you got to do to pull those things up, hit those links, uh, get you some knowledge in. The Grand Central Atelier is a fascinating place. Um, uh, Stan actually did a whole video on it, a like 30-minute tour. Then you get Zoe talking about sculpting, and there's a separate video about just sculpting. Both of those are great. And do your research this stuff's interesting there's a big wide world out there and we're gonna be exploring it together so yeah pick up some clay sculpt face and you can make out with it yeah see i mean i told you there was some appeal to sculpture so what are you waiting on <laughs>